You're listening to this Sunday's sermon from Hope Church RVA. To find out more about Hope, plan your next visit, or support the work we're doing in Richmond and beyond, visit HopeChurchRVA.com. Happy Fourth of July weekend. It's great to have you here. Good to be together. If you are joining us and you're out of town on this holiday weekend, thanks for joining in. And so we are, as Dan said, coming to the conclusion today of our series called The Reconciling Heart of God. And perhaps you've been able to follow along a bit week by week, or maybe just here and there, or maybe not. So what I'm going to do is try to frame a couple of significant ideas that are coalescing to what this series has been about. One of them is that the personality of the gospel is reconciliation. That God's heart is to reconcile the world to himself in Christ. He has offered Christ and the gospel as an expression of this reconciliation. So the personality of the gospel is that it's a reconciling gospel. I've also offered that in the challenges and the questions where God is calling us to be ambassadors of reconciliation, you may remember in 2 Corinthians 5, God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ, and he is giving us the ministry of reconciliation. He's calling us to be ambassadors of reconciliation. To be an ambassador of reconciliation is hard work. It's not superficial platitudes. It's really hard work. And in many respects, these types of questions arise when there is some kind of disagreement or friction or something like that in the air. This could be around a table with a meal with family or friends. It could be in larger social settings or politics or whatever it might be. And one of the key questions, I think, for us, if we really do want to seek the heart of Jesus is in those moments, am I going to feed my flesh or am I going to operate out of the spirit, right? Because when you feel some contentiousness and you feel some internal insecurity or angst, you feel that a position that's important to you is getting challenged or questioned or doubted, what we want to do is win. You want to win in that conversation. Everything in the flesh wants to win, And I use this, what I think is kind of an unsavory term. We can either be flesh feeders or we can operate out of the spirit. And this is hard work to address these questions. So today I'm going to try to talk about what does Jesus mean? How do we do our part as ambassadors for reconciliation? I'm going to try to provide the vision for this, the foundation for this, and the strategy for it, to the best of my ability. But what I really want to try to emphasize is that if we are to do this work, this is deeply spiritual work. And I don't know if you know what I mean by that, but to give a snapshot, I mean, this is deep interior work of the Holy Spirit of God, the reconciling peace of God, being resident within us by God's Spirit, which then enables us to begin to move outwardly through this peace and this residence of the Holy Spirit in us. If we don't cultivate that relationship with Christ, if we don't cultivate this residency of the Holy Spirit within us, 
then we're going to be more inclined to be operating off superficialities or knee-jerk reactions or emotional reflex. So this is what I mean when I say it's deeply spiritual work. <clears throat> okay, the section I'm going to read is from what's called the Sermon on the Mount. Many of you are familiar with that term. If you're not, this is a lengthy section of Jesus' teaching. Many people consider it sort of like the essential Jesus in terms of the core of what he taught. And this is in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. I commend the whole sermon to you. It's long if you really want to grow in this terrain of the reconciling heart of God. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Then he says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Okay, so to set the stage a little bit, Sermon on the Mount. Jesus near the Sea of Galilee, big hillside by the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is teaching thousands of people. When he says, you are the salt of the earth, he's using the plural you. We've talked about this a bit in the past, but English stumbles on the word you, Y-O-U, because it is both plural and singular. It's the same word, right? So we fumble around with this. In the South, we turn it into y'all, in the Northeast where I grew up, it's used guys. <laughs> so if you can stretch with me, maybe depending on where you're from, Jesus says, y'all are the salt of the earth. Or more familiar to my native ears, used guys are the salt of the earth. Some of you are like, that is not working for me. <laughs> All right. <clears throat> but the point is, it's plural. I think we are often at risk of over-individualizing the way Jesus is speaking to us, as though you alone, like you're the only one. And he's speaking here to those who embrace him as Lord and Savior. So while the plural you includes the singular you, it's not just you singular. The point is, when all of us embrace this vision of being the salt of the earth, now some really cool, salty, gospel, reconciling work begins to happen in the world. Okay, one of the things that's going to be very challenging, as often happens when Jesus teaches, is you have to hold two dualities in their dynamic relationship and tension. I've said this a lot, but we struggle to do this. We tend to make it either or. We tend to have a very hard time holding a dynamic duality together. When Jesus says you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, both salt and light are distinct from the thing they're penetrating, but then they move into and penetrate. So on the one hand, it's this distinct from that's very important. But if distinct from becomes only distinct, then you never penetrate the other. So the flip side challenge is you say, okay, I want to penetrate the other. <clears throat> but then you become indistinguishable from the other. 
And then you, you lose that distinctive influence. I hope you're with me. If you've been around the church for a long time, this has been called the in the world but not of it dichotomy. That Jesus is calling us to live in the larger world but not become the values, norms, and the people of the larger world. So move into it and be distinct from it. That dynamic tension takes a lot of work. It's a spiritual work. But the point is, if you only stay in your distinct identity, you're not making any difference in this larger world. But if you move to penetrate within the larger world and you completely abdicate the distinct identity of Christ, you're not making any difference in the same way. Twin errors in this dynamic tension. Okay, so here's, here's the vision that Jesus had. The vision he's giving us is you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. Honestly, when I read this, I imagine myself in the crowd and I think, are you talking to me? Because I don't really feel that way. Like Jesus, you're telling me, we, that, that we're the salt of the earth and the light of the world? It usually doesn't feel that way. It feels like we're kind of struggling through, holding on to threads, maybe holding on to Jesus' threads in a big world around us that seems to be moving on values and norms that are quite counter, perhaps, to the character of Jesus. So when he says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, it's a significant statement. It's different than him saying, try to be the salt of the earth. Try to be the light of the world. He's saying you are it. So we've got to figure that out. Note that both salt and light are entities that, that give off or give away. They move outward to have their effect. They're not consuming. They're not taking. At root, these are givers. So he says, you're the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. All right, let's talk about salt for a moment. Back in those days, salt was both flavoring, but more importantly, preservative, right? There's no refrigeration. Salt was how you preserved primarily meat. And you could smoke meat or you could salt it or you could do these other things to try to preserve it. But we, I think, tend to think of salt mostly as a flavoring because we've got a lot of other stuff now that helps with the preserving part. So when we think of salt, we think of flavor. It is flavor, but in that context, when Jesus spoke of it, people would have received that much more as preservative. Let me say it another way to keep things from decaying. You're the salt of the earth. To keep things from decaying. So it's both flavor and preservative. Okay, so like, I think of this, and of course for salt to have any effect, it can't just be hanging around all the salt, like staying in the salt shaker. Or in that day, it would have been a little bowl with a little spoon. If it doesn't get out of the hanging around with all the sameness, it has no effect. And so we're going to begin to ask in a moment, how does salt lose its saltiness? That's one of the ways. But salt has this flavoring effect as well, right? So I like salt. I know, talk to your cardiologist, but I like salt. So frequently, Elizabeth, who's a good cook, my wife, she'll make a nice meal, and I'll take the salt and start putting it on. This is how the conversation goes. Are you going to taste it first? And I'm like, well, I know that I like salt. 
okay? Well, she's intentional about her cooking, and she's like, I was intentional about the flavors that you were going to taste. So she'll really say this, or has said it on occasion. She's back in children's ministry. I don't know if the sound's getting back there right now. <laughs> she'll say, it's a little bit offensive if you salt the food before you taste it. And, and the conversation ends up like no bueno. It's, like, it's not good from there. Because I try to defend myself. But honey, I, no. Uh-uh. So he says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? Reasonable question. How does salt lose its saltiness? One, it's never mixed in. It stays in all the surrounding salt. It just stays with all the salt. If we could make the metaphor and personify it, it's much easier and more comfortable to spend all our time in the salt dish. With a lot of people who are very familiar to us, believe all the same things, think all the same things, and we can all nod together at our dinner parties. But that's not really how we penetrate the world and be salt in the world. So if we are never mixed in or never poured out, if we are just contained in the container, if we are staying in a bubble world with a bubble of our people, we're going to lose saltiness. Another thing about salt, of course, it's like so simple and so basic, but when you put salt in something, it's like thousands of little grains. And I do think that this is part of what Jesus wants to convey. Remember, he's speaking to a crowd of thousands on a hillside, and he uses the plural for you. And I think he very definitely has in mind thousands of expressions of salt all dotting all these places is how the reconciling heart of God begins to be expressed in the world. Thousands of little grains. It makes me think, I remember a long time ago, President uh, George H.W. Bush started this Thousand Points of Light initiative. And what he was trying to do is give attention to the thousands of expressions in our country that happen every day. Expressions of kindness, sacrifice, integrity, honor, that nobody ever notices. But what he was trying to do is illustrate all these unnoticed thousands of expressions that happen every day are an incredibly important part of life in our society and life in our world. So I think another way that salt loses its saltiness is it just becomes stale. It's just been sitting still for so long that it just becomes stale. It's not, again, to personify the analogy, it's not listening, it's not growing, it's not stretching, it's just sitting there becoming stale. It begins to just decide to permanentize all the ways it sees the world, and in a sense, the salt gets calcified, and it loses its saltiness. It's no longer supple, it's no longer flavorful. And so Jesus says, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything. Anything's a pretty big word. It's no longer good for anything. Okay, so then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. So salt provides preservative, keeps things from decaying, and yes, flavor. What does light provide? I think the two biggest things light provides are direction and hope. When, when things are really dark and you're really lost, 
Maybe you've had an experience like this. And at some point, you finally see this light. What light? Either the living room light that's off in the distance or the light from that street light that you recognize, or you're in a boat and you finally see the light you recognize. The light provides a remarkable amount of hope and guidance. So when he says you are the light of the world, I think he's saying you provide a remarkable amount of hope and guidance. Why else do we say things like this? It was so hard for a long time, and then I began to see a light at the end of the tunnel. Right? I know the cynics. Yeah, it was a train coming. And then we talk about when we're really in grief, when we're really in grief and we say, it felt so dark for so long, but then, but then, just the tiniest shafts of light began to make their way into my heart, and I began to feel that I was recovering from this grief. Light is an incredible expression of hope and direction. So Jesus says, you're the light of the world. Let's take a moment to reflect on this because I think it's really important. In the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1, right? God says, let there be light. The darkness was already there. What God brought into the darkness by speaking it out was let there be light. God didn't speak darkness into existence. God spoke the light into existence. And light is known as it penetrates the darkness, right? It's known by its comparison, its juxtaposition to the darkness. If you're out on a sunny day and it's light everywhere, you're not generally thinking it's light out. You're generally observing the light in juxtaposition to the darkness. Light shines in the darkness is the phrase that we use more often than anything else. I love this kind of picture because it helps us realize when light and darkness come in conflict, the light moves into the darkness, not the other way around. Here's a super simple example. Let's say that you were like out on the street looking at a house and in the house, let's say upstairs, there's a bedroom up here in this window and there's lights on. So you can see the lights are on through the window in the bedroom. And out here, just a couple windows over is the hallway and it's completely dark. So presumably the door is closed between the bedroom and the hallway. If you open the door to the bedroom, what happens? The light moves into the darkness. When you open the door, you'll see that cone shape of light penetrating the darkness. The darkness doesn't penetrate the light. When you put the two together and the light has access, the light moves into the darkness. And I think this is part of what Jesus is saying when he says, you are the light of the world. So when we think about God and this matter of light, in Genesis 1.1, he spoke light by his word. And then in the Gospels, he sent light through Jesus. And now he is commissioning light through his church. You with me? He spoke light by his own word in Genesis 1. And then he sent light, which is Jesus, of course. And now Jesus is commissioning believers to be the light. That is ideally supposed to be the church. So you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. Sometimes it doesn't feel that way very much, it doesn't feel that way very much to me. But if we flip the script, it might be a little bit revealing. For instance, imagine for a moment the countless expressions of salt and light that are happening around every day in our city, in our country, and in the world. 
And you might think, well, it doesn't feel light. I get that. We're in hard times. But imagine the countless acts of goodness, charity, justice, integrity, love, people giving hope, people giving help, people giving of their generosity, people being sacrificial. This is like the George H.W. Bush thousand points of light thing. This is happening thousands and thousands of times every day around our city and in the world. Imagine if all that just went away. Things would feel really, really dark. I got curious about this in terms of like expressions of light, generosity, and so on. So I did a little research on this. And according to a BBC study, and there's a bunch of other studies you can find that give similar results, it says this, religious people are more generous than non-believers when it comes to giving to charity, according to research compiled by the BBC. This research found that people who profess a religious belief are significantly more likely to give to charity than non-believers are. So that's one little tiny example of being light. The ways that we give, the ways that we sacrifice, so Jesus says, you are the light of the world. But wait a minute. I don't necessarily feel like light emanates and resides within this person. And here's where we're going to get something quite similar to what I've been speaking about over the weeks. I've been talking about the peace of God, that we don't have this peace resonant within. We don't have this peace innately within us. Within us innately is fear and anxiety and kind of a train wreck mess in there. But God, who is peace, offers us this peace through the residency of the Holy Spirit. Similar type of idea, John chapter 8, Jesus spoke again to the people, and he said, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So what we see again is this idea, we don't have this light innately in us, but Jesus is the light of the world. And through the residency of his spirit within us, now we reflect that light. There's an important difference between we generate it or we reflect it. And what Jesus is saying is we reflect it because he is that light. And if we are in an intimate relationship with him, we will reflect it. Did you say, if we are in an intimate relationship with them? I did. That is one of the biggest ifs of this entire series. All this conversation about the reconciling heart of God, the people of God, the church expressing this, this depends on people being in an intimate relationship with this Jesus. To try to operate the reconciling heart of the gospel without this deep, intimate relationship with Jesus is going to be a superficiality, and it's not going to be the kind of thing that Jesus is talking about. Speaking of the blessing from Numbers chapter 6, many of you are familiar with this in the song recently from the Numbers 6, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. Dallas Willard comments this way, he says, the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Peace comes in the presence of God, in having God's shining face over you and in having him looking to you and you looking to him. In other words, we reflect that peace, but it's not innately ours. And now Jesus is saying, I am the light of the world. We reflect that light if we have this relationship with him. 
Okay, so that's the vision. You're the salt and the light. What about the foundation of this work? The foundation of this work is that it is spiritual work preceded by spiritual training. You have never gone out and done a significant piece of work without having had to prepare and train for it. And what is that spiritual training? That spiritual training, that depth of relationship with Jesus, I think is best understood in the Beatitudes, which I want to read for a moment. In other words, it's a mature relationship with the biblical Jesus, which then can become mature living like the biblical Jesus. A mature relationship with the biblical Jesus then can become mature living like the biblical Jesus. And where can we try to encapsulate that? I think biblical reconciliation is going to come from Beatitudes type of people. So the Beatitudes are a very significant centerpiece in the Sermon on the Mount. Let me read these for us, if I could. And if you're so inclined, I'll invite you maybe close your eyes and just try to take these in. Because this is the kind of person that Jesus is talking to. And his phrase, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world, came immediately after the Beatitudes. So when he says, hey, you Beatitudes type people, you, you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you. In other words, Jesus is saying, people like that, you are the salt of the earth, and you are the light of the world. We live in a flesh-feeding culture which would tempt us to say people who are triumphalistic, people who are aggressive and full of contempt and win the issue are the ones who really are the kind of people we want to be. That's very different than Jesus' teaching on the Beatitudes kind of people. You know this, right? You could take a family mealtime and there can be a controversial issue that comes up and everything in you wants to win the conversation. So you amp up, you feed the flesh, it feels good, and you win the conversation, and you lose a relationship. Jesus is calling us to a deeper spiritual work than this, and it's hard work. So the foundation of biblical reconciliation comes from being Beatitudes kinds of people. Dallas Willard said, when you listen to people talk about peace, you soon realize in most cases that they are unwilling to deal with the conditions of society and soul that make strife inevitable. They want to keep them and still have peace. 
but it is peace on their terms, which is impossible. And we can't all just get along. Rather, we have to become the kinds of persons who can get along. I'll just say one more time, this is what I mean when I say this is deeply spiritual work. And what's the strategy for being the salt and the light, for being the ambassadors of reconciliation? Surprisingly, I think we get the best short version of the strategy in Romans 12.1. Do not let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. That's not generally the way I want to conquer evil. When I'm feeling exercised by something that is evil, I want to defeat that thing directly. Now, I know that there are larger other conversations in play here, but what Jesus is saying in the salt and light, large, expansive strategy, overcome evil by doing good. Keep doing good here, there, and everywhere. And as that tide of goodness continues to rise, evil begins to realize that it has less and less receptivity in this place. Like light that is dawning with a sunrise, it begins to overtake the darkness of the night. And that emerging dawn becomes a full light as we conquer evil by doing good. The constant creation of good, increasingly doing good. And you know what? This often will not satisfy the most triumphalistic, strident personalities. But this is how the Bible is teaching us to overcome evil. Let me offer like an example, an illustration, a picture. Over the years, I've seen lots of people who have had remarkably beautiful redemptive vision for some of the hardest places in our city and in our country. And I've had the opportunity to visit with people who had a redemptive vision for some of the most difficult urban landscapes in our country, where murder rates were high, where abuse was high, where all kinds of drug trading and everything negative that came with it was high. And life there was like a blight of fear. And people, remarkably courageous visionary people, salt and light people, beatitudes people, begin to take a few steps of overcoming evil with good. And they do simple things, actually. Some of it's quite simple. Plant a flower garden in an open place in an urban landscape. And you're like, what difference does that make? You'd be surprised. When you start to create beauty, beautiful things happen. Other people say, I'm just going to go read to some kids in an after-school program. And now the tone of the place is changing. And then other people begin to say, we're going to try to bring the best way we know how to bring some economic opportunity initiatives to this place. And slowly, 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 and I mean, I've seen this over 10, 15 years, not 10, 15 weeks. Slowly, you see a city landscape that had been blighted begin to be transformed. Because all of these advancing efforts at overcoming evil by doing good begin to create this rising tide of beauty. And in time, the evil begins to say, there's no receptors for us around here anymore. And the beauty of the reconciling heart of the gospel begins to be expressed. Is that hard work? Yeah, it's really hard work. Is there a price to pay for trying to do that work? 100% there is. And I've talked with plenty of people and been in situations where that price 
is paid. The vision, Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. The foundation is being Beatitudes kind of people in an intimate relationship with Jesus. And the strategy in large measure is to overcome evil by doing good. This is the reconciling heart of God coming from the reconciling people of God who have a mature reconciled relationship with God and who shine like stars in the sky, like light in the darkness. Philippians 2 says it this way, do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. Let's pray. Lord God, Holy Spirit, we feel like we hear you inviting us to a vision of the reconciling heart of this gospel. Lord, we pray that you would move in our lives, that you would increase your residency, Holy Spirit, which then means an increase of peace, an increase of light, not because we have it within us, but because you have brought it to us from the very throne of God, from the very essence of your being. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us take up the mantle and be ambassadors for reconciliation. We pray, Lord, for the contentious, broken world that we're living in. Would you help us be the kind of people who are these Beatitudes people? Would you help our nation, Lord, on this 4th of July weekend? We pray for our leaders. We pray, Lord, that you would move in their lives. We pray that you would give them discernment and wisdom. We pray for our leaders, those with whom we agree and those with whom we disagree. We pray, Lord, that you would rise up agents and ambassadors of gospel reconciliation who bring grace and truth and justice and goodness and righteousness and peace. And so, Lord, would you help your church to be people who express this character, this reconciling personality of your gospel. That's us, Lord. We're praying you help us be these people. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.